As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an iHeart Original. Isaac Newton had put dozens of people in the dock, the defendant's stand. But now, he was sitting there himself. Metaphorically speaking, he was accused of trying to frame an innocent, law-abiding man. A man who'd long been on the side of justice and the new monarchy, who'd stood as witness against confirmed Jacobite traitors, who'd been so helpful with the Bank of England's fraudulent notes. A man who'd blown the whistle on the mint's corruption, but was now being repaid for that bravery with stints in Newgate Jail. And worse, death threats. That, at least, was the case that William Challoner had cooked up against Dr. Isaac Newton. In late October of 1697, Newton's case against Challoner was dismissed before it could even come to trial. But Challoner had already spent seven weeks in filthy Newgate, and he felt he was entitled to something. An acknowledgement that he'd been wronged, maybe even some compensation. In February 1698, Challoner took his case to the Court of Public Opinion. He wrote a letter to Parliament, a letter that he also had made into pamphlets for public distribution. Your petitioner did, in the last sessions of Parliament, discover several abuses committed in the Mint and showed by what methods false money was coined. Then some of the Mint threatened to prosecute me and take away my life before the next session of Parliament, telling me that this honourable House had no power to meddle with the affairs of the Mint. This committee promised your petitioner that I should suffer no damage for these discoveries about the Mint. Yet they committed me to Newgate and kept me in irons for seven weeks, alleging that I had abused the Mint in Parliament, and they did falsely and illegally prefer a bill of indictment against me, but could bring no evidence. I am utterly ruined by my endeavours to serve the king and kingdom, 
and by my discoveries against the mint to this honourable house. I most humbly plead that this honourable house will consider my great sufferings and ruined condition as being incapable of providing for myself and family by what I intended for the service of the public and grant me such redress as shall seem best in your honour's great wisdom and justice. Challoner's accusations meant yet another investigation. This time, it was Warden Isaac Newton at the center of it. Newton was forced to defend himself to a committee of senior government officials. Mr. Challoner, before a committee of the last sessions of Parliament, laboured to accuse and vilify the Mint and prove himself a more skilful coiner than they, that he might be made their supervisor and then supply Thomas Holloway with tools out of the tower to counterfeit his own milled money, which he then concealed from that honourable committee, boasting secretly that he would fund the Parliament as he had done the King and Bag before. Challoner was a liar and a counterfeiter, and it was for that, and not, quote, offending the mint, that he was being prosecuted. If therefore he be ruined, it's by his endeavouring not to serve the king and government as he pretends, but to coin false money. And if he would but let the money and government alone, and return to his trade of Japanning, He is not so far ruined that he may still live as well as he did seven years ago when he left off that trade and raised himself by coining. The committee believed Newton. It was, after all, stacked with a few of his mates, to be honest, and they dismissed Challoner. But Newton was pissed. Newton is not a man to suffer insult lightly, and he most certainly felt insulted. And if we know anything about Newton, it's that he does not forgive and forget at all. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. Episode 7, Funny Money. Act 1. The Malt Tickets. Challoner's attempt to publicly discredit Isaac Newton and the Mint was more or less a Hail Mary. He had to know that they weren't giving out fistfuls of cash for wrongful imprisonment. That wasn't a thing back then. But he was desperate. When Challoner had gotten out of Newgate in the autumn of 1697, he was broke. While he'd been in Newgate, he not only had to pay off the witnesses who would have testified against him, and get Holloway and his family plus made out of the country. But he also had to pay for everyday expenses, food and bedding. Newgate wardens also charged for every visitor who came in. So yeah, Challoner had spent pretty much every penny he had to keep afloat. 
Jalener needed money, big time. And as a lifelong career criminal, he really only knew a few ways of getting it. Jalener first tried his hand at making some crude coins, shillings, over the fire in his flat. He was living in a rented room above a pub near Covent Garden, which was then a noisy, formerly posh market district that was home to gambling dens and brothels. That big, fancy house in Knightsbridge, that was long gone, and he'd probably sold all of his silver plates and his gents' clothing by now, too. But not even his mates would try to pass his poorly made coins into the market. So Challoner did some thinking. Making coins, making good coins, at the quality he had been producing, took raw materials. It took, well, money to make money, even when your scam is literally making money. But then Challoner remembered the success that he'd had with those banknotes. By now, counterfeiting Bank of England notes had been bumped up to a treasonous offense, meaning you could hang for it. So trying that again was probably not a good idea. But there was another monetary innovation happening. And this one was tailor-made for Challoner, largely because it was bonkers and utterly chaotic. Okay, so bear with me. Thomas Neal, you may remember as the feckless master of the mint. This re-coinage is not going well at all. It must be somebody else's fault. He was a man who never turned down a chance to gamble with someone else's money. In 1694, Neil set up a lottery to bring in some revenue for the government. Called, and this was a real thing even though it sounds like a scratch-off ticket, the Million Adventure. Each 10-pound ticket had a chance of winning up to 1,000 pounds. But when it came time to pay the winners, the Treasury couldn't. Oops. So that worked out terribly. So terribly, in fact, that Neil thought, let's try it again. Probably because he personally made a bunch of money out of the adventure, let's be honest. In 1697, with angry adventure ticket holders still waiting to be paid, Neil set up the malt lottery. And the treasury let him. Seriously, who thought it was a good idea to let Neil do literally anything at this point? But the malt lottery was even weirder than the million adventure. Here's Tom Levinson, author of Newton and the Counterfeiter, to explain. It was several things at once. First of all, it was basically an annuity product. People would buy it and they would be promised a given rate of interest for some number of years. They wouldn't get their principal back, but they'd get this return for, for a long time. And uh, that interest payment was a secured payment, and it was secured on a specific source of revenue, a tax on malt, which is effectively a tax on beer. So that's, you know, in the English context, that's a pretty secure revenue stream. It was also an actual, just plain ordinary lottery ticket. Every one of these malt lottery tickets that were sold carried entry into a drawing for significant cash prizes. Think up to a thousand pounds. And again, a thousand pounds is, is, remember Newton's annual salary as warden of the mint was 400 quid. So a thousand pounds is a lot of money. The treasury issued 140,000 of these 10 pound malt lottery tickets. Just as with the adventure tickets, people group together to purchase shares in them. So again, there's a bit of a, an equity market going, something that had already been a part of the cultural landscape for decades now. So the malt lottery tickets were like a long-term savings bond. 
and they were also a gambling instrument. But the malt lottery tickets had an extra feature, one that was pretty unusual. There was a third thing that they could do. It turned out that this particular lottery did not sell very well. So in order to try and get as much use out of having decided to issue these things, Parliament decided these could be legal tender. Or at least, if not legal tender, precisely, they could be treated as money. So for captive audiences, like you know, sailors in the Royal Navy, those guys were paid in lottery tickets. All of a sudden, you have this one piece of paper that is at least three things at once. It's paper money, it's a gambling device, it's a completely speculative device, and it's a stream of income. And it was a kind of continuation of the Bank of England's running cash notes, just on a much, much larger scale. The Bank of England notes were issued in 100-pound denominations, huge amount of money for a lot of people. But the malt tickets were only 10 pounds, and there were potentially going to be a lot more of them in circulation. You know, what was great about this is as money, they had a face value, 10 pounds. You knew what you were getting when you got one, or if you were a challenger, if you made one. Challenger cottoned on pretty quickly that the best thing about this malt lottery was that it was going to be so, so easy to exploit. The great battle between Isaac Newton and William Challoner across 1696 and 1697. By the end of it, Challoner was really quite in desperate stakes, but Challoner had one more great scheme in him. The problem was, again, money. Though setting up a counterfeit lottery ticket operation was certainly less costly than trying to set up a fake mint, it still took supplies, the right paper, copper for creating the engraved plates, special ink. He needed a backer, someone who'd help finance this operation for a cut of the profits. Challoner tapped into his dwindling network of contacts. He didn't have many people left who weren't in jail or who he hadn't double-crossed or who hadn't tried to double-cross him. He came up with a man called Thomas Carter. Carter was a mate from Challoner's early days as a coiner, back during his first successful run in 1692. In June 1698, Challoner asked Carter to procure him a malt ticket. Procure me one of those so-called malt tickets? With what money, sir? I have but one shilling. Again, these weren't cheap. Ten pounds was more than a skilled tradesman earned in three months of work. So Carter was going to have to find someone who had enough capital to fund the scheme. Perhaps you can find a man of adequate means who desires to increase his fortune. I suppose. But whatever you do, keep my name out of it. Carter came up with a man called David Davis, which sounds like a made-up name, but not more so than the unlucky Daniel de Coiner, who in 1684 was executed for coining. Carter met Davis on Piccadilly, then a major thoroughfare through Westminster. Please do explain this secretive and most urgent business. I am acquainted with a man which could engrave very dexterously and had a strong inclination to grave a plate for malt tickets. The copper is not yet bought, and for my own part, I have not been master of one shilling this month, and my friend is very indigent. Besides, this business requires a good stock for lodgings, provisions, and other necessities to complete the work. 
you are not to see my workman, nor shall he be concerned with you. But if you confide in me, the work shall go on with all speed. Suppose that your friend, after a great deal of money is laid out and expended, cannot perform the plate. It's a very curious thing. And no person that I ever heard of did understand taking the reverse of a fine bill upon copper. Besides Chaloner. Ask no questions, but if you knew who my friend was, you'd allow he was as great a master as Chaloner. Davis agreed to back the enterprise. He provided three legitimate malt tickets and a bit of working money to Carter, who then passed them on to Chaloner. It took Chaloner the better part of two weeks to engrave the copper plates, laboriously etching the ticket in reverse, hunched over a tabletop in his rented lodgings above the Golden Lion in Wild Street, near Covent Garden. Carter kept Davis in the loop, updating him on progress almost daily. When the plates were ready, Chaloner did a test run. Six score, that's 120, malt lottery tickets so finely wrought as to be indistinguishable from the real thing. Chaloner and Carter sold Davis about 100 tickets, the first of many more, they promised. Chaloner stood to make hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds off the scheme. It was like printing money, because it was printing money. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. 
because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 2 the silver-tongued man. By the time Davis was handed that big stack of malt lottery tickets, he was sure that Chaloner was the man who'd engraved the plate. But David Davis had a secret, a big one. Davis was an undercover agent, and he was after Chaloner. But he wasn't working for Newton. He was working for the Secretary of State, James Vernon, the Secretary of State was a cabinet ministerial position, but it was just, at this moment, shifting from being like an actual secretary to dealing with bigger domestic and civil issues. When Davis made that deal with Carter, it was Vernon's money, the state's money, that he paid him with. And when Carter brought him news that the plates were finished, Davis went straight back to Vernon. I addressed myself to the Right Honourable Secretary Vernon and did acquaint him that a malt ticket plate was counterfeited and that to prevent the distributions of several false tickets there was a necessity to secure some that were done and to subsist the persons that had done them till I could obtain the advantage of seizing Chaloner and of securing the plate. Davis and Vernon worked out the next part of their plan to catch Chaloner. I returned to Carter, telling him I had a friend that would take £2,000 worth of false tickets, desiring him to let me have all the counterfeits that were taken off the plate, upon which Carter gave me a considerable parcel, having thus secured all which I understood were printed. Davis and Vernon believed that they had the situation contained. They believed that they had all the fake tickets that had been printed. Davis's next job was to find those plates. But Davis couldn't get a straight answer about where the plates were. He proposed that the engraver, actually Chaloner, print as many tickets as the plates could handle and then break the plate in two so that no one could copy his work. Chaloner didn't know, obviously, that Davis wanted to use the broken plates as evidence against him. But Carter kept putting him off, and Vernon was getting pissed. The Right Honourable Secretary Vernon seemed very much dissatisfied at these delays, which I hoped to bring to a period every day. And here's where things start to get really complicated. As it turns out, what was keeping Chaloner from printing those last tickets was that he was being pursued by Elizabeth Holloway. That's right, Thomas Holloway's wife and the gang's former utterer. Hell hath no fury like a woman shorted out of her fair share. When Chaloner bribed her husband to light out for Scotland, he'd stiffed them, didn't give them what he promised. Elizabeth, back from Scotland, 
was now using what she knew to threaten Chaloner. She'd turn him over to the warden of the Royal Mint if he didn't pay up. So Davis waited and waited, and Vernon got more irritated. And the whole thing was starting to look like an expensive mess. Thousands of pounds lost and nothing to show for it except some bits of colorful paper. At this rate, the nation may be imposed upon while you're talking to me. I will either find Chaloner a printing with the plate in a week's time, or otherwise it will be in your honor's discretion. Carter then had more bad news for Davis. Because of the heat Elizabeth was applying, Chaloner had stashed the plates with a lady friend, a midwife by the name of Samson from over Clare Market Way near Drewling. And she'd gone into the country. No idea when she'd be back. Things got worse for Davis. He learned that Carter had sold some of the fake tickets to someone other than him, meaning that there were fake lottery tickets out in the streets, precisely the situation that the Secretary of State was trying to avoid. Vernon had had enough. He told Davis to arrest Carter and then, plates or no plates, put out a reward for the capture of William Chaloner. 50 pounds of real, actual money. In October 1698, Chaloner was arrested again, and again remanded to Newgate Jail. Disappointingly, there was no dramatic scene in the Lord's Justices. Isaac Newton didn't get to yell, arrest that man, down a hall. In fact, we don't even know how Chaloner was found, just that a thief-taker called Robert Morris became 50 pounds richer for bringing him in. But at no point during the search for William Chaloner did anyone in the Secretary of State's office communicate with the Mint. I mean, why would they? This isn't modern policing we're talking about. Technically, Chaloner's arrest was Secretary of State James Vernon's big catch. That made Chaloner his problem. Moreover, the crime of counterfeiting the malt lottery tickets was, in actuality, not a Mint problem because it wasn't coin. Whose problem was it? Well, that was an open question. Isaac Newton, however, was ready and eager to make it his problem. Once he found out about Chaloner's arrest, that is. We don't know how he found out. It was either through his own agents or through his other contacts. But we do know that he was not going to let William Chaloner wriggle off the hook this time. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was good. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act 3. The case against Mr. William Chaloner. The defeat in that first court case really stung Newton. That's Tom Levinson, author of Newton and the Counterfeiter. From the point that Chaloner gets off that first time, Newton really spends a lot of effort tracking Chaloner's movements, trying to identify the different schemes he's in, trying to put the bite on his associates. Newton convinced Vernon to let him be the one to prosecute Chaloner. Once again, however, the evidence was thin. Chaloner had been smart to ditch the plates when he did, and when he was arrested, he didn't have any of the counterfeit tickets on him. The best evidence that Newton had was Carter's testimony. Carter, who was one of the gang who'd actually been caught passing the counterfeit notes. Newton realized that while the plates remained at large, convincing a jury that Chaloner was guilty of that specific crime was going to be much more difficult than convincing a jury that Chaloner was guilty of a whole bunch of counterfeiting-related crimes. But the prosecution, they're the agent who would uh, devise what the charge would be. That's legal historian Harry Potter. What was needed to achieve a conviction was to present evidence of guilt. What Newton needed, what he was looking for, was evidence in the form of eyewitnesses, people who would be willing to swear before the jury and judge that they saw Chaloner counterfeiting. Some of the rules of law were were not yet established, so we didn't really have a presumption of innocence. By modern standards, the evidence of eyewitnesses who maybe saw something in the distant past would likely be contestable. But this is the late 17th century. So as long as the jury were convinced that there was sufficient evidence to convict, they would do so. Newton decided to just 
Find as many people as possible willing to testify that they'd seen Chaloner doing something, anything, at some point. So he started in on everyone who'd ever been associated with Chaloner. I'm Mrs. Matthews' maid, Mary Ball. In June or July last, Mr. Chaloner and Mr. Davis came to my mistress's lodgings, and Mr. Chaloner locked himself in a room upstairs. Well, I was curious, so, well, I looked through the keyhole. I saw Mr. Challoner sitting with his back to me and his face towards the window. As he turned his head aside, I could perceive something very bright lying before him which looked like a plate. I am satisfied it was a copper plate. It looked like a thing that was scratched. Newton seemed to hit upon a good seam of evidence. Ask the wives, ask the servants, ask the people on the edges of the operation, the people who'd have been involved but not so directly that their participation couldn't be pardoned in exchange for information. Ask people named Catherine, evidently, because he had like three of those. I saw that he was making bills and I told him he would come to be hanged for it as price was. Gave me some of those shillings and said they were dangerous or else he could make them as well as they were in the tower. He told me that he was to make 100 pounds in Dutch money for a merchant. And for that purpose, he borrowed a room off of me to work in. I saw Will Chaloner often coin French pistoles with stamps and a hammer. His brother-in-law, Gravener, he said that Will used to make the silver blanks they used for guineas. Newton was relentless. The same fixation that had him sleeping in his kitchen lab in Cambridge had him pulling in witness after witness in the hopes of massing enough damning testimony to finally sink Chaloner. I keep the subject constantly before me. Till the first dawnings open slowly, little by little, into the full and clear light. In one 10-day stretch in February 1699, he took a deposition every single day. It was probably more than that, but Newton later had many of his depositions burned. The more Newton dug, the more he uncovered. People like blacksmith Nathaniel Peck, who'd bought some fake coins off of Chaloner back when he'd been calling himself Chandler. Chandler hath several times owned to me that he made those pistols himself. He used to boast how well they were done and that they were better than ever were made and no man in England could do the like besides himself. Or Humphrey Hanwell, Thomas Carter's mate from prison. I saw Chaloner coin French pistols in Gutter Lane in Cheapside with a hammer and stamps. John Abbott, who might have solved the mystery of the missing tower dies. Chaloner, it seems, had gotten them from a man inside the mint. William Chaloner, now prisoner in Newgate, showed me three or four blank stamps for guineas, which he said he could get to be struck with the tower dies. And then there were the Holloways. Thomas Holloway had once been Chaloner's right-hand man, his protege in the art of coining. But that was before Chaloner had swindled him in that Scotland deal. I heard Chaloner own that he struck some of them and boast his workmanship and have seen the guinea dies in Chaloner's hands. His wife, Elizabeth, told Newton that she'd seen Chaloner making fake guineas and pistols down in Egham just a year before and that he definitely bought her husband off during his last stay in Newgate. Michael Gillingham came to the said Thomas Holloway to the Bolton Town Inn in Fleet Street 
and said Chaloner, who was then a prisoner in Newgate, had sent him to tell him Chaloner would give Thomas 20 quid if he would not appear as a witness against him in the following sessions. The portrait of Chaloner that emerged from the testimony of the witnesses arrayed against him was damning. He routinely boasted of his own skill in counterfeiting. He had a recipe for a water that could erase the printing on any bill. He threatened people who got in his way. He once locked a woman in a room and refused to let her out until she gilded the number of guineas he'd told her to. He bribed others to get out of jail, informed on anyone he could. And he most definitely, absolutely, had been seen counterfeiting. A lot. Just not the malt tickets. But it didn't matter. All that testimony added up to one thing. Newton had a case. And this time, as sure as that apple, rotten or not, always falls to the earth, he was going to get that conviction. Coming up on the final episode of Newton's Law. When he arrived there, he made very light of the matter, bragging he had a trick left yet. But when he heard how many witnesses came in against him, he began to droop. All you that in the condemned hold do lie, prepare you, for tomorrow you shall die. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Mark McDonald, Robert Jack, Paul Tinto, Emma Falkins, and Ruthie Stevens. Special thanks to Tom Levinson and Harry Potter. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatakudur and Finiflex Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks so much for listening. It's a very curious thing. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. 
We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.